listener. You can sit in a dark room, but someone's going to have to turn the light on and the only person that can turn that light on is you. So if you you don't love your body, you're struggling with your body, what can you do to love your body? And you have to turn that light on yourself. For this episode, I'm joined by queer First Nations triathlete, model and disability advocate, James Parr. A few years ago, James says he was overweight, unfit, and had severe issues with both his confidence and body image. After losing 35 kilos, he'd finally begun to feel comfortable and confident in his body before he was suddenly diagnosed with osteosarcoma. Three months later, his right leg was amputated. Fast forward to now, and James has learned to love his post-cancer body as an amputee. He's a model, and disability advocate and wants to help people change the way they think about themselves and their bodies. So I wanted to ask James to help me answer this week's big question. How can I learn to love my body? Now, James, you are the perfect person to be answering this question for us. First of all, do you love your body? Do you know, I think it's like a, a question that's forever evolving because, you know, yesterday I could have loved my body, today I might not. But I do. I think you just go through those emotions. And, you know, for me, coming to love my body, I think when we talk about loving our body, I think our first inference is what our body looks like, our shape, our weight, those types of things. For me, you know, I had cancer and as a result of cancer, I had an amputation and I think, you know, having chemo for a year and then alongside the amputation and being able to see how after each chemo, my body bounced back, how my body bounced back after the amputation and how my body has even bounced back now, four years later. So that love for my body came through how my body adapted and how my, yeah, just like how my body took on cancer and chemo and it didn't stop. James, you say it in such a matter-of-fact way. I had cancer and yeah. an amputation. I mean, that's so loaded. There's so much emotion, isn't <laughs> know, it, that comes with that? Yeah. yeah, it does sound very loaded. I guess it is matter-of-fact. And, you know, I have found people get so shocked, one, because I don't know what to say, and two, because disability is... Um, made out to be the worst thing that could happen to you and how could I ever have a life after having an amputation? So I guess it comes alongside with with those types of things. So I just try to keep it matter of fact so as not we don't have to have those conversations, but we don't have to have that continuation of the narrative that disability is a bad thing. You mentioned there people don't know what to say. Yeah. What would you like people to say? It's a good question. I think everyone is different. For me personally... Two of the most frequent things I get are, that's so sad. And while I, we understand what they are saying, that can come across in an ableist tone because basically you're saying that my life is sad. Although it's a sad situation, or it could be a sad situation. Again, it just comes down to the representation, the narrative that has been created for disability and that it is sad. And, you know, so even re, having that reiterated makes us look at our body and we think that we are not worthy or that why should we love our body because I have a disability or maybe my life is sad or maybe I am sad or maybe they should feel sorry for me even when they're like, oh, I'm so sorry for you. And it's like, well, what are you sorry for? 
because I'm still me. So yeah, I think they're the two most frequent things. I think trying to avoid them, you know, some people go through very traumatic events if they've acquired a disability and, you know, they may not have come to terms with that or have come to terms with their body. People grieve very differently. So four years ago, you had the cancer, went through the chemo. When you woke up and you, so you're below the knee. Below the knee, yeah. What was that like in terms of how you felt? Starving. (laughs) (laughs) Because you had the anesthetic. I'm not kidding. (laughs) I woke up and I was like, oh my God. Was that your first thought? I'm hungry. 100%. I'm like, I just want Macca's, (laughs) but I wanted Macca's brekkie. I don't know. I think it was, again, still time sort of feels frozen and I don't think you realize what is happening or what has happened until it actually happens. And, you know, even though I was in a hospital bed, I had spent pretty much three months in a hospital bed prior to that on chemotherapy. So I guess I didn't really, didn't really hit me because I was used to be sitting in a hospital bed and waking up, the first thing I did was check to make sure they took the right leg. Seriously? (laughs) (laughs) I had my sisters like filling me with these freaking horror stories about someone taking the wrong leg and then they had to go back, take the other one. Anyway. Typical siblings though, isn't oh, it? I mean, in terms like, of it, But teasing, it actually did like calm me helped. down. Yeah, yeah. So when I got out, I was like, oh, like I really want to check. But you have a nurse with you in your room for the first hour. I'm like, oh, I don't want her to know that like that's what I'm doing. Like I just don't want to create any attention. So I was pretty chill. So I was like, oh, like why would I not just move my left foot? I don't know why I hadn't thought of that. So then I tried not forgetting, but just in that moment, didn't realize I had the epidural on. So you wake up with an epidural. So I went to move the left leg and I was like, I can't feel it. So I was a little bit more scared. And because I actually woke up with the uh, feeling of numbness in my right ankle and foot. So, so that was the first thing. Then we moved to the food. Yeah. So did you go through any sort of depression or, or downtime? Not when it came to the disability, I had gone through three months of chemo, pain had increased in my ankle, although they had never told me I needed an amputation. Initially, I was just needing to do a bone graft and because there was an increase of pain and those types of things, I think I had had it set in my head that that is what was going to end up happening and I had accepted it well before they told me that it was actually going to have to happen. Um, So when they did tell me, I was like, okay. And plus at the point, I uh, was in getting a lot of pain where the cancer was in the bones, was in the ankle. So it was just causing a lot of pain every single day. So I think I was also like, take it, <laughs> please, because I want the pain gone. So I had fully accepted it. The only thing that, I, not even depression, I think it was more so trying to identify as someone with a disability because it does come along with a lot of shame and negativity and sadness and the feeling of, uh, I guess, being devalued or invaluable to have a life or, or, or those types of things. That's how I felt. That was pushed on to me. Again, you know, I had everyone saying, oh, that's so sad. I'm like, well, what's sad? Like, I'm actually not sad. You're making me feel sad because that's how you look at me. So, we went straight into lockdown afterwards and that was the time where I sat there and I thought like, okay, I actually am disabled and disabled is not a dirty word. 
And meanwhile, for some reason, I don't want to identify as disabled, even though I am, and I don't want to identify because it comes along with all of this stereotypical stuff that doesn't actually align with me. How can I rewrite that narrative for myself? And, you know, I think it just came back to disabled is not a dirty word and having those having those conversations I remember my very first conversation was with a lady doing an ultrasound she was asking questions and I don't care if people ask and especially medical professional because they're interested and it got to oh how old are you and I said oh 21 or 22 and she said oh that's so sad and I was like okay so what's so sad then because <laughs> it's true and she didn't have an answer and I was like look I'm not having a go at you I it probably has come across that way, but I just want to tell you, don't use that language in the future because if I hadn't yet accepted my disability, which there was a time where I didn't, hearing that reiterates that I have a sad life and my life could be better than yours, babe. So I guess in that also was figuring out like everyone has a struggle in life and whether a disability could be my struggle or not, we all have struggles and we're not out there saying, oh, you have a sad life, you know? So I don't think having, I guess, an amputation prospect like is very visual, but I think trying to really rewrite that narrative that having a disability is sad. And again, I remember I even said to one of my friends, I was like, oh, would you ever date someone with one leg? She said, yes. And I knew she would say it. Then I was like, oh, okay. So would you have said that before it happened to me? And she said, no. I would have said no. And I thought the same as her, to be quite frank. And that comes along with like that internalized ableism and, and those type of things. And I thought to myself then, well, I've changed my own mind for one. And if I can change someone else's, maybe I can change others. And so that sort of gave me the, the motivation to try and rewrite that narrative that having a disability is sad. I want to talk more about that question of how can I learn to love my body? You talk about what happened to you. It's very physical. Mm. So when you look in the mirror now, all of us have a bit of an internal dialogue in yeah. our heads. Yeah, and yeah, often yeah. in the mirror is the most confronting. Yeah. You know, what do you do? What do you see? Yeah. So I know I always look in the mirror and I went through like a really bad stage where, you know, Every single mirror or window that I could look in, I would look in and people were like, oh, stop looking at yourself. But I was actually just looking at myself because I was self-conscious. And I think the thing that I've really learned is that it's literally just a body and everyone has a body and there is no basically one size fits all. And, you know, looking in the mirror, I actually don't pull myself apart anymore. I'm just like, oh, okay, that's me. And I think trying to learn how you can learn to love your body, I mean, for me, is just coming back down to, it is my body. Everyone has a body. You know, you're actually stuck in this body for your whole life. So are you going to live a life hating it or can you love it? Because it's hard and it evolves and it changes. Like I could wake up tomorrow and I could pull myself apart, but I go back to everyone has a body. Like who actually cares? Yeah. And do you do that in quite a deliberate way? in terms of how you think about yourself? Because I know sometimes with me, I've found over time I'm far gentler now on myself than I was when I was younger. Yeah. But I look back at myself when I was younger and go, 
what on earth was I worried yeah. about? I also think it could be, you know, I talk about it representation quite a lot. I also think it could be even just the way representation has changed in the media. I know when I was younger, all we looked at was one type of model or public figure. or So I think having that constantly shown to us was like, that's what we need to look like. And now that this beauty standard has changed to actually fit real people and to show real people in real life, I think that's also helped, you know, me, for example, come to terms with my body and seeing other people like that in the media because we are living in a consumer-driven world and our whole life is on media at the moment. So... I think that also comes with it. And when you're a teenager, we're all going through body changes. And, you know, I remember I was the hardest on myself when I was a teenager. And I also think, God, like my body went through so many changes then. How could I be hard on something that was just changing rather than actually loving my body back then and being proud of who I was? I think that also, like you said, like compared to when you were younger, I think it comes back down to do you want to spend a life hating your body or loving your body? And what what are the differences going to look like in those two different situations? And also seeing what our bodies are capable of. 100%, yeah. Like our bodies are capable of so much. Like I basically had poison in my body and it, it was fine. And I mean, I've looked on your social media. You jog these long distances. I could think of nothing worse than going on a run, but you seem to revel yeah. in going for a run. So funny you say that because I remember when I got my running blade and went for a run for the first time, I'm like, why do I even want to do this? <laughs> <laughs> why did I spend so long trying to get a running blade when I'm like, I actually hate running. But <laughs> How do you feel about running now? I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I'm half kidding because it's like every time I go for a run, I'm like, do I actually like this? But I do. Running, I guess for me, is just... Again, a point for me to prove people wrong because I was told I couldn't run for this or I wouldn't be able to do this or it would take this many years. And, uh, even running, again, just shows what we are capable of or our bodies are capable of, but also what we are capable of if we put our mind to it. And, you know, I think the mind is very powerful as well. So Our minds are just phenomenal. Like, yeah, Aren't crazy. They? Yeah, <laughs> Very strong mind. Mine, no, yeah. I'm kidding. <laughs> but, I love, you know what, James, too, what I love about what you do is that you use humour too yeah. to disarm and to educate. Yeah, so we had that conversation before about using humour for advocacy and the way I got into advocating, especially for people with a disability, was actually through humour and I didn't realise I was doing it at the time, but... Over time, especially with the physical disability, again, very visible, you have people notice the the disability straight away and they point it out. And I, I just get so annoyed when, you know, you're on the street or get in an Uber or on a dating app. The first thing that they say to you is, oh, what happened to your leg? And it's like, okay, so you want me to sit here and tell you my possible trauma, tell you my medical history, or what if I haven't accepted it? Like those types of things come into play when those questions happen. Plus, it instantly makes you feel uncomfortable because it's like, oh, okay, I'm good, thanks. How are you, you know? But yeah, I remember trying to navigate dating after then acquiring a disability because I had been able-bodied for 20 years and then I had to navigate everything in social settings as someone who's disabled because it then instantly changed. So when people would send me a message on Tinder or, or whatever it was, like Hinge and their first question, which happened a lot, was what happened to your leg or what's with the leg or, you know, stuff like that. When 
that would happen, I would just muck around and humor myself and make up like bizarre stories like um, your typical ones like crocodile, shark. So it was abseiling, got caught in the rope and someone had to chop it off to get me down. I've thought of like so many odd, yeah, doctor, chopped the wrong one off, um, (laughs) stuff like that. Like I've just, you know, and it sort of really shocked people. So I started there just sort of screenshotting the funny stories and sharing it on um, Instagram. And then I started noticing how what they were taking away from that conversation. I was taking away the fact that I was just coming up with a stupid story and people were believing it. But people were more interested and engaged in the fact of how they were actually talking to me. And I was like, yeah, you're right. And this is why I do it. So I think it sort of taught me that, you know, humor can really engage people and then they can have the bigger picture of what is actually happening without even saying it as such. And so I think for me, if I can use humor or a funny story or something to sort of do it in a relaxed way, people are going to take away that message more rather than thinking, oh, like, okay, I can't say that or can't do that anymore or, you know. Well, it's a very effective way to educate people, but make people stop and think. And that's very much what you do. What I think is so cool too. I mean, you're a Calvin Klein model. Yeah. Aren't you, James? Yeah. Tell um, us about that. Yeah. So we, I did the Pride campaign for, for Calvin and even thinking about it, I'm like, I can't believe I did that. Well, well before I got into modeling, I feel like when we're younger, we were like, oh, I'd love to model for Calvin Klein. And I remember when I first started pursuing modeling more as a career and then when it was booked, even when I shot it, I was like, this is wild. But yeah. <laughs> so what did you think then, James, seeing the images? How did it make you feel? Again, I actually remember shooting and, you know, so we're talking about body image. I hated my body image to that day. And I, I feel like sometimes if we're just like a little bit run down or just sort of a bit tired or probably not eating well, I don't feel well. So because I don't feel well, I hated my body in that time of shooting. And even though I was seeing the images, I'm like, oh, they actually really look really good. Coming back, I was like, oh, I still don't look good. You know, I was having that constant fight in my head and it was just a little bit of an off day, but it was the best shoot. So it was hard to have that internal monologue while you're having the time of your life. And then when it came out, again, going back to that day, those thoughts popped back up in my head and I was like, what the hell was I thinking? Like, isn't it just funny how your internal monologue can dictate something that is completely wrong or have these thoughts of what you look like or whatever, but realistically, you just made them up yourself. Yeah, it doesn't align. It doesn't align. Yeah. So just finally for our listeners there who know our big question is, how can I learn to love my body? What is something you could say to someone who's listening who might be at a moment in their lives where they're really just thinking, no, I'm not feeling good about who I am. What would you say, James? I would say what I've used as a personal motivator is you can sit in a dark room, but someone's going to have to turn the light on and the only person that can turn that light on is you. So if you you don't love your body or you're struggling with your body, what can you do to love your body? And you have to turn that light on yourself and, you know, the only person stopping you is you. So you can't rely on anything else to love your body other than you. And so whether that is physical, mental, health, even eating, what you're eating or what you're doing, um, 
it's a plethora of things when it comes down to body image. And so I think trying to take that power back and get that initiative, what you can do to love your body and so that you don't feel like that. James, thank you for helping us turn that light on. Thank you. What a wonderful, wonderful chat. Gee, I've enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. Me thank too. you. <laughs> oh, I just adore James. Isn't he the most fabulous young man? And I love the way he uses humour to disarm people, but also to begin a conversation and to help us think about doing things differently. We might think we're saying the right thing, but James has really given me some very good food for thought. And if you feel inspired by this chat with James and you want to stay up to date with all of his amazing projects that he's doing, then check out his Calvin Klein campaign. The best way to do this is by following him on Instagram, and that is at underscore James Parr. Now, I'll be back next week with another beautiful, big conversation with one of my guests. And if you enjoyed this chat with James, why not share it with someone who might also be learning to love their body better? We all want to talk to ourselves in a better way when we look at ourselves in the mirror, don't we? So let's look at doing that in the week ahead, my beautiful listeners. For more big questions like this, subscribe to the Jessro Big Talk Show podcast. It means you'll never, ever miss an episode.